When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is actually Friday the 13th of October, the spookiest of all days because there is no playoff baseball tonight, as all of the division series have wrapped up and we know who the final four teams are. So obviously we're going to go and recap some of those and look ahead to the ALCS and the NLCS. Matt, before we get into kind of breaking down what we just saw, can I make a quick hot take about the randomness of the playoffs, which is all anybody ever seems to want to talk about. Uh, The Houston Astros are the two-time defending American League champions. They've been to the ALCS for seven years in a row. They're back. The Philadelphia Phillies are the defending NL champions. They're back. We might actually get a repeat of last year's World Series. That, to me, I know there's some randomness in the sense that the Braves are out and the Dodgers are out and fine and fine and fine. Uh, We're not getting, like, I don't know, an A's Nationals World Series, which I think is what people are acting like is happening right now. Do you agree? I very much agree. And I think, I mean, it's something we, you know, we, we touch on all the time here, right? Like I think that, you know, baseball is inherently kind of, I don't want to say more random than we give it credit for. It's just like, there's so many variables in any given game, any given series that like no outcome should really be all that surprising, especially once you get to like the good teams playing each other. Um, as I mentioned to you on Slack earlier, there was a really good framing, I thought, in Joe Sheehan's newsletter this morning, where he basically was like, if you take every team in the playoffs record and you condense it, you, you like sand it down to five games, they all round down to a three and two record. Every single one, like the the Dodgers over the season, over five, you know, their winning percentage, they would win like 3.05 games out of five and the D-backs would win like 2.6 games out of five. But the point being that like, this is what we're working with here. When you're talking about five game samples between baseball teams, especially quote unquote, good professional baseball teams, this is where you're going to land. And this happens every year. These, these types of quote unquote upsets, and I put scare quotes because they're not really upsets, have been happening forever in baseball and it's strange to me that every year we like sort of forget this and act like this is a new thing 
Yeah, the dirty little secret here is so um is a best of five enough to tell you who the best team is? No, the answer is not. The thing is the best of seven also is not. <laughs> like that's we we have made best of seven into this like, you know, unimpeachable thing. And it's it's just not true. And honestly, I'm I'm not gonna waste too much of our time going back through the entire history of baseball. In nineteen oh six, the one hundred and sixteen win Chicago Cubs lost in the World Series. So they're across time rivals, the Chicago Whites, like 116 wins. And remember, in a 154-game season, <laughs> these things have been happening forever. Okay, now that I have that out of my system, I, I want to start with um, Phillies Braves because that's the one we just saw last night. And I think the Phillies are a really great example of this, right? You look at the Phillies, you say, big underdog to the Braves, right? They won, what, 14 fewer games, I think. And yet, if you look at the shape of the Phillies season, they got off to a lousy start. You know, 25 and 32 over the first uh, two months. You know, Trey Turner wasn't hitting. Bryce Harper wasn't playing for much of that time. And if you go back to that 25 and 32 start, so that's June 2nd. After that, they had the second most wins in the majors. They played 619 ball for four months. That's a 100 win pace. So I think an alternative telling of this, here's my headline. Defending National League champions shake off lousy start to play at 100 win pace for four straight months. And not only that, because of Harper being able to play a capable, decent enough first base, Kyle Schwarber gets to DH. He does not touch the outfield. And I like Kyle Schwarber for a lot of reasons. He is a brutal defensive outfielder. Really, maybe the weakest in all of baseball. He DHs. Now you've got very good outfielders out there defensively. You know, Marsh, Pache, whoever they do it. That That is one of 25 reasons this team is different right now than they were in April or May. And all that matters is right now. That I, I guess I didn't mean to make this a whole rant, but it has turned into a whole rant. We, we, we actually talked about this in when in the spring training when Reese Hoskins got hurt. And at the time, I said, like, Reese Hoskins is a, is a you know, big, personality-wise, a big part of this team. But he's also a good, not great, right-right first baseman who's not a great fielder. And in aggregate, I don't want to say it's been a blessing in disguise for the Phillies, but, like, allowing to have Bryce Harper learn first base and play competently. He's still a little shaky out there, but, like, probably about as good as Reese Hoskins. And he's a better first baseman than... Kyle Schwarber is a left fielder. How about that? So yes. getting Schwarber off the field and you get Johan Rojas in center, who's been good, although we had that a little bit shaky on that that awkward uh, Ronald Acuna fly ball in the late innings last night in game four, but he made the play. They're a strong, like in aggregate, it, it kind of makes them a stronger unit, right? It's like takes away some major weaknesses um, of the team. And that's, you know, part of, I don't want to say they're better without Hoskins, but like you could see how the roster fits better and you, they don't have to worry about the egos of like, Oh, where do we play Harper? Where do we play Schwarber? Where do we play Hoskins? Like, no, this is what we're going to do. We're going to play Harper at first place. We're going to play Schwarber at DH and we're going to get good defensive outfielders in the outfield. And this is, this series was definitely not an upset. I think more than half of MLB.com's like expert pickers picked the Phillies to win it. I had the Phillies in four. So, Hey, so let's let's stop recording right there. Phillies in four, done. Oh, you, I didn't say four. I think I, I probably think said five. five. Yeah, but you know, eleven of us uh, made predictions, and six of us picked the Phillies, which is essentially 50-50. It's like, hey, these are two very good teams. The Braves were better over six months. We know the Braves had some pitching issues, which I I think reared their heads in this postseason, right? Like the whole Bryce Elder start didn't go well. Honestly, it comes down this series to the Phillies pitching uh, shutting down good Braves hitting. Like, that's entirely what it is. Ronald Acuna did almost nothing, right? This is going to be a recurring theme when we get to the Dodgers. Ronald Acuna hit 143, two hits and two walks in 17 plate appearances. 
up and down the lineup, they just didn't do anything. I don't think that's an indictment of their talent. I had one person say to me, oh, they're they're too much of a feast and famine team. And I'm like, are you out of your mind? This is one of the best offenses we've seen in baseball history. They didn't even strike out too much. It just the Phillies have two ace-level starters. I know Nola didn't have a great year, right? You've got Ranger Suarez, who's not, you know, a solid starter who generally seems to always pitch better in the postseason, right? He's like off-brand Madison Mumgarner in some sense. And then you've got a whole bunch of relievers in the bullpen who throw 175 miles an hour and have absolutely no idea where it's going. Like that is their whole thing. And that that's hard to hit. And I do want to give a little bit of credit to Spencer Strider, uh, who spoke to Jason Stark in The Athletic. And he said, and I quote, nobody to blame but ourselves. Me personally, I wasn't good enough. And then he refused to blame the layoff. Uh, I don't know, the attaboy thing, any of this ridiculousness that the Phillies played better and they won. And sometimes it is as simple as that. Yeah, they, they, I think they had homered the Braves 11 to 3, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, that's, like that. that's, that tells you, that tells you the story right there. If you get out homered 11 to 3 in a playoff series, you are not going to, we've already seen that the team that homers more wins like 80% of the time. And when it's that big of a gap, you know, you're, <laughs> you, you could predict the outcome. Yeah. As you know, I'm a very statistically inclined person. But uh, as far as the vibes go, the vibes are absolutely off the scales on this Philadelphia Phillies team. And they're going to play the Diamondbacks. We'll preview that series in a second. But first, you know, the Dodgers, uh, the Diamondbacks did pretty much embarrass the Dodgers, right? And I'm a little bit torn here. I don't want to gloss over what the Diamondbacks did because they deserve a lot of credit, right? You don't do what they did without doing something extremely, you know, productive and good for them. But also the way the Dodgers pitched, I know people want to get to, oh, Clayton Kershaw struggles in the postseason and that's fine. The way those three starters pitched, I don't think they beat the 1962 Mets. I don't think they beat the Oakland minor league team in June, right? Three starting pitchers combined for four and two-thirds innings, a 25-07 ERA, 16 hits, 13 runs. Kershaw was terrible. Bobby Miller wasn't great. Lance Lynn got absolutely torched. We knew the Dodgers had pitching problems coming into this, this year. Absolutely well-known. I didn't think it would be this bad. Um... I also I don't want to say I didn't think this because I think I actually did make this joke last week. Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman went one for twenty-one, and all we're talking about is pitching. Maybe the superstars need to hit. It's like it kind of comes down to that, and credit to the Diamondbacks for preventing it. For sure. I mean, you can that you can game plan for lots of things. You can prepare for all sorts of scenarios. You can't com- prepare for your your starting pitchers having a twenty-five ERA over the course of three games. Like literally, if you put your that is like well below what we call replacement level. Literally, a double A pitcher. They could. Be, I'm talking about triple A. You could put a double A pitcher out there and expect better results. You can't prepare for that. And you can't really, I mean, you knew it wasn't going to be great and you can maybe criticize Dave Roberts for letting Lance Lance Lynn out to dry a little bit. Um, But that's not, Dave Roberts is not the reason they lost this series. They they had three starting pitchers who all got torched. Their star star players who, you know, I have a higher opinion of those two players than maybe almost anyone. We're, we're we're bad, and that's that's all. There's you want to say randomness, you want to give credit to the Diamondbacks, whatever. It's what happened, and that's why the Dodgers lost the series. I mean, I I thought looking back on how I sort of assessed that series, you know, I was way off. I thought the Dodgers' pitching depth would be enough to overcome overcome their starting pitching. I was like, well, they're they're like eleven deep, and they can use all these guys, and it's like it doesn't matter. You know, game one, you know, Kershaw gave up like six runs before getting like two outs or whatever. First. He didn't even get two outs. I didn't get one yeah. out, and it was a hard hit ball. So there's not much you can do there. And credit, I mean, the Diamondbacks executed, right? This is this is why they play the games, as they say, if you don't. <laughs> so credit, credit to them for taking advantage of the Dodgers' weakness. I'll say that. 
Yeah, if, if you just want the team with the most wins to advance through every postseason series, that's called playing baseball on a spreadsheet, which, as I'm told, is what most baseball fans actually want. They don't want to see the actual games. Uh, and the American League, um, I feel like, doesn't it feel like the uh, the Rangers and Orioles series ended about six weeks ago? <laughs> it's like I've, I've already forgotten about it. I had to go back and refresh myself about it because it felt like it ended so quickly. Uh, that's another upset in the sense of, obviously, the Orioles had many more wins. As we talked about, their pitching staff had kind of turned upside down. The bullpen, which seemed like it was going to be a strength, uh, wasn't because of injuries. And then what happened there is you thought, okay, well, the, the starting pitching will be a strength, right? Because like Grayson Rodriguez turned into an ace down the stretch, and Kyle Bradish pitched like sort of an ace down the stretch. And I didn't even – the one take I disagreed with a lot, I think, was that they really failed by not going out and trading for more starting pitching in the middle of the season, right? I think that was true last winter. I don't think they did enough last winter. But as Rodriguez progressed and as Bradish uh, progressed, and it's like you look at the starters who were traded, um, I don't I don't think Verlander was ever going to agree to go there. I don't think Scherzer was ever going to agree to go there. Could they have gotten Jordan Montgomery? Sure, fine. Uh, it just didn't work out. Like They had good pitchers, and the starters allowed 13 runs in eight innings. Credit to the Rangers. And also, I mean, Felix Bautista got hurt after the trade deadline, so there was nothing they could do about that. And I think, and then combined with like, you know, Yenier Cano kind of running out of gas, this bullpen formula they had really got kind of turned on its head a little bit. And I think that like the cascade, and this is one of those things that's really hard to quantify of losing Bautista and everyone kind of having to shift into a higher level. It was like really exacerbated on that team because with Cano kind of falling off a little bit, you just felt like, there was not a ton of trust of how they were going to get those innings. And I think they ran into that problem in game three when Dean Kramer, who had a solid year overall, but like his peripherals were not great, ran into trouble. And I'm sure Brandon Hyde was thinking there like, yeah, I could yank Dean, Dean Kramer here, but I got to get seven more innings. And I'm not sure how I'm going to get those seven innings with like the pitchers who are available to me. And having Bautista available doesn't solve all that, but it certainly like changes how you can perceive how you're going to try and get through the course of a playoff game and the, the the Rangers the Rangers bats came alive they hit and after game 1 when there was game 1 was close and you had the missed steal sign you had uh Josh Young turned that sweet double play with in like I think the 7th inning and then you had the confusion of the missed hit and run and that was a close game and then after that it was you know it was done the, the Rangers just like the Rangers bats torch them. And the Rangers have a good offense. That's the thing. It's like because they got off to a hot start and then they faded and it was sort of like they, they kind of looked like they were going to like blow it all in late August, early September. But their offense is really good and they showed that against the Orioles. And not only is it good, it's slightly different. And this kind of goes back to how hard it is to just look at a team's full season, right? Because one of their best playoff performers was Evan Carter, who only came up like, I don't know, the second week of September or whatever, and then had like basically a historic postseason. He's had one of the best first postseasons anyone has ever had. And I feel like you've got to account for that again. Like, here's the team you have right now, even if it's not the team you had in April or in May or in August. What do you make of Corey Seager drawing nine walks without a strikeouts in this series? It's one of the silliest stat lines I think I've ever seen. And, and he's not someone I think of as like a, you know, Joey Votto plate discipline technician. No, he's like a he's like sixty walks a season kind of guy, right? He likes to swing the bat. It's, it's 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 fluky. It speaks. To, I mean, it speaks to the Orioles pitching plan for the series, and I'm kind of curious how the Astros approach him. My guess is they're not going to be nearly as careful with him. I mean, you have to be careful with him. He's one of the best hitters in the league, but 
the strategy, strategy, as it were, did not exactly work out because he was on base all the time and the Rangers kept scoring runs, right? Like, base runners are valuable. Just because he's not swinging the bat doesn't mean he's not helping the offense. When he walks, that is good for the Rangers. Final series, uh, Houston and Minnesota. This is the one I think I was most disappointed in, not because of a, a rooting interest, but because like, the Twins were like the team I thought were going to be the American League Phillies, basically, right? Everything was pointing in the right direction. And it just didn't work out, you know, like they, the bats never got going outside of Royce Lewis. Um, Sonny Gray had a really badly timed blow up because he'd been one of the best pitchers in all the sport. And I feel like the lesson learned here is until further notice, never bet against the Astros in the postseason. Like, have we not learned this enough times? And there's been so much turnover, obviously, like players, sure, but management and scandals and all of it. And yet they're they're always here. They're always here. I Like, I will not learn this lesson again next year, and I will regret it again. That I'm certain. It was so well set up for the Twins, right? They lose game one, and they come back in game two. Pablo Lopez pitches great. They get the win. They go back to target field where they look like they've got the pitching advantage. They've got Sonny Gray versus Christian Javier in game three. It is like set up as well as it, maybe not as well as it can be, but like reasonably speaking about as well as it can be. And then they come home and this is one of the regular season narratives that stayed true in the postseason. The Astros being absolute world beaters on the road. They were 51 and 30 on the road this year. They go to target field. They blew them out. They outscored them 12 to three in two games. I mean, the, the pitching, the pitching numbers are just really really stark. The twin batters in those two games had 28 strikeouts, nine walks, and six hits over those two games started by Christian Javier and Jose Urquidy. You're you're not going to win <laughs> like that. And credit to the Astros. You know, the Astros pitching, those guys both pitched well. They've both had good postseason track records. The bullpen, Brian Abreu, continues to pitch well. Rafael Montero continues to pitch well as he pitched well down the stretch of the season. Like, this is, the, I mean, this is the extent that the Astros have a secret sauce, I think it's that. Their bullpen has been the last few years. And a lot of it's been the same characters. That's the thing. is like they have had some consistency in the players. Abreu, uh, Ryan Presley, Hector Neris, Rafael Montero. There, there's, there is some year-to-year consistency there. And that's that's not a... No, and a lot of credit, I think, to Christian Javier because this is a guy who's had a lot of postseason success but did not have a good year this year. Right, the fastball was down, the life was down, and it was really set up well for the Twins to beat him around the park. And he pitched, he pitched great. And to the point about the Astros being great on the road, remind me of this if I'm if I'm getting this wrong. Wasn't it true that in um, in 2019 that World Series won seven and the road team won all seven games? Obviously, they lost. The Nationals won the series, but I, I feel like this has been kind of a thing that it's like. I don't have a good reason why, and I feel like nobody wants to admit that it keeps happening because of all the history there and the things that happened at home, and yet they're not good at home. It's like the weirdest thing in the entire world, and it might be the number one thing I'm watching for in the upcoming ALCS. Like, we'll get to that in a minute. I know everybody's going to be like, cool, you know, Texas versus Texas, Dusty versus Boshi, and all I'm going to be watching for is the Astros win at home, or will they win on the road? That's going to be super fun. All right, we'll take a quick break, and we'll come back, and we'll look ahead to the ALCS and the NLCS. Back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petrillo and Matt Myers. We're going to look ahead to the ALCS and the NLCS. We have the final four teams, Phillies and Diamondbacks in the National League, Rangers and Astros in the American League. I did want to make a brief note for you here. Uh, the Diamondbacks and Rangers have started off their postseasons 5-0. and And in the nearly three decades since the wildcard system came around in 1995, they're two of just 11 teams to do that. 
eight of the other nine teams went to the World Series, and the only one that didn't was the 2020 Braves, and they lost to one of the teams that did, the 2020 Dodgers. Matt, do you agree this guarantees we're getting a Texas-Arizona World Series? That's how this works, right? Lock it in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the uh, In the American League, so we'll have Astros, and we'll have Texas. I think the number one open question, at least as we record here on Friday morning, is Max Scherzer part of this, right? And if he is healthy enough to be there, will they lean into the theater of it all and ensure that he starts against Justin Verlander? If you're going to have Max Scherzer and he's going to start a game, I don't want to see him starting against Framber Valdez. I want to see Verlander on one side and I want to see Scherzer on another side. And I want to look at all of my friends who are maybe Mets fans and I want to see their internal angst. That's what I want to see. Can we make that happen? Great theater, sure. I mean, like, I don't know. Speaking as a Mets fan, like, I'm kind of over it. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I feel no attachment. This is not, you know, like, if it was, uh, I'm trying to think of what would be examples, you know, of, of, of ones that might make me feel angst. Like, these guys have no real association with the Mets. Um, but it would it would make great theater more for so for their careers with the Tigers and also just as, you know, two of the defining pitchers of their generation. The Scherzer thing is fascinating to me because, like, obviously – if he can go, you want to give him a shot. But as I think I said last time, he's been feast or famine for like a year and a half now. And so now you're just like widening the you, – you basically need to have someone warmed up, ready to – it's almost like you need like a piggyback. And like Max Scherzer is not the kind of guy – he's a very proud pitcher. It, I think, you know, it's like it's a very delicate situation to balance. Great, I mean like if anyone should be able to balance it, it's Bruce Bochy. So I imagine that there would be some good communication there and they'll know how to kind of do it. I don't want to necessarily say it's risky because, like, I'm not sure exactly what the alternative is, but, you know, the alternative of what? Dean Dunning, right? So, but it does feel like there's a lot of downside to throwing Max Scherzer out there against the Astros in an ALCS game right now. Yeah, there's a secondary question, too, which is that John Gray is in kind of a similar situation. And he might also be back and he might not be stretched out. So you could see, like, a, between them and Andrew Heaney and Dunning, some kind of piggyback situation. But I would argue this if they do it, uh, I think you got to start him in one of the first two games, right? Because if you look at the way the schedule goes, uh, game one Sunday, game two Monday, and then a day off on Tuesday. And because I agree with you, he's, the potential for him not to go deep is strong. And if you're going to have like five relievers have to follow him, I'd rather do that with a day off the next day as opposed to in a game three where there's game four the next day and game five the next day after that, which means Montgomery one and Scherzer two or flipped. I don't care that much. And then Evaldi three, I guess, even though I think Evaldi might be a better pitcher than Max Scherzer. It's complicated. I'm glad I'm not making this choice. To mention the fact, and um, it does feel like given the homer prone nature of Scherzer these days, keeping him away from Minute Maid with those shallow fences down the right and left field line might be beneficial. But it's a, I think it's a really good point. More so the off day is a really good point because for, for, all, for all the reasons that why do we have to keep him away from the short porches? I thought we've already decided the Astros can't hit in Houston. So maybe that's maybe that's a better place for him to be. Um, I think I guess we can wait to the end to do predictions. I, I think we don't have to worry about upsets in this one. I don't care that one won the division and one didn't. They were an equal 90 and 72, right? Like they were pretty close. I think the shapes of it were extremely different, right? Texas got off to this great start and that was pretty rough down the stretch and then got a little bit better. It was different for the Astros, but I feel like as far as um, the the regular narratives we like to go to, it's not going to be better team versus worse team. It's not going to be um, rest versus momentum, I don't think. It, it might be playoff experience, 
because the Astros are here every year. And not that the Rangers don't have guys like that, Boshi, Seeger, uh, Scherzer, right? But as a team, they haven't been here. It's been, well, 12 years, 11 years since they've been to the ALCS. It's been a long time. There's also, I mean, there's the inter, they, these teams are rivals, right? Like there is a, there is like the whole Texas thing. There's a rivalry there. You know, 10 years ago, the Rangers went to back-to-back World Series. They came close to winning. Very close to winning it and did not. Um, and they they had a really good run there where they were kind of the, the dominant team in that division. And since then, the Astros have been eating their lunch for a few years now. So there's definitely a little bit like Rangers kind of want to show that they can they can they can hang with the other team in Texas and they could beat them. I mean, I think one of the big narratives that we're probably going to hear a lot about is how the you know the Astros be, they had the same record, but the Astros won the tiebreaker and they have the Rangers number. They went nine and four against them this year. I'll note that one of those games, just to pick an, pick an example, the losing pitcher for the for the um, Rangers was Cole Reagans, who is famously <laughs> not on the team anymore, was traded to the Royals in a game that, and I'll admit, I had no recollection that Ian Kennedy pitched in baseball in 2023. Ian Kennedy pitched in the same game. This was in April. So talking about how different the teams are right now. One of these games that the Astros beat the Rangers this year, Cole Reagans took the loss and Ian Kennedy pitched as well. So point being... These are different teams than maybe what we saw in April or even or even April, June. So I don't really care about the nine and four record. I care about the rosters we're going to see on the field right now. Evan Carter certainly Evan Carter certainly was not on the team in April. So I don't want I just kind of throw throw that out the window. These are very evenly matched teams. And I'm not even sure like I, I don't even I'm trying to form a prediction as we talk about it, but I guess maybe we'll save our predictions for the very end. Um surely you're talking about Ian Kennedy Jr and not the actual Ian Kennedy who came up with the Yankees like 18 years ago. That can't possibly be the same person. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, I'm trying to stall as long as I can before actually having to make a prediction here, right? And you know, even with the managers, you've got this amazing story of former San Francisco Giants managers, right? But Hall of Famers, almost certainly. You've got Bochy. You've got Dusty. Like, what What do you do with that? There's there's no sunlight here. Yeah, I mean, I think if, if we're going to make our predictions now, I think that I go back to kind of what you said before, and this is, I think, the reason why I picked the Astros to win the division before the season. I think it's why I picked the Astros to win the division last season. It's why I picked the Braves to be the National League East this year, which is basically like, until they give me reason to pick against them, I'm not going to pick against them. And so for that reason, I will pick the Astros to win this series in six games. Yeah, I think I think the only certainty is that if you're going to pick one of these teams, yeah, it would be malpractice to say in four or five, right? <laughs> like you have to say six or seven. I'm going to say seven. Uh, I'm going to say Astros in seven. You said Astros in six. Well, we'll have to hold ourselves to that next week. We'll take a break. And we'll come back and we'll talk about the NLCS. Back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petrillo and Matt Myers, we're going to preview the NLCS. I think I'll be the first to admit that when you think about Philadelphia and Arizona, it's not necessarily the sexiest matchup that you might think about. You could have the Dodgers, you could have the Braves. The Diamondbacks are not like a nationally known team in that way. And I'm a little bit excited that that's about to change, right? The more people who know Corbin Carroll, the better. Um, Christian Walker has been my favorite underrated superstar for a number of years. He is uh, later today. I'm going to write the uh, position by position breakdown for the site. And I was thinking about this last night. Like, am I going to be able to say Christian Walker over Bryce Harper at first base? I'm thinking about it. Like the, the defense is massive and Christian Walker's hit like 70 homers the last two years. I'm not sure I'll get there, but I might. 
And if you just watch this team at all, they're super duper fun to watch in a different way than Philadelphia is, right? Philadelphia is fun to watch in a, we are all the best bros in the entire world. And I hope we keep in touch after graduation. Arizona is fun in the sense of like, we are fast and we're young and exciting. And I can even say this as someone who grew up as a Dodger fan, while it was personally painful to watch the Dodgers give up four home runs in that sequence, uh, from a baseball observer point of view, watching Perdomo, Marte, Walker, and then Moreno hitting a foul ball homer and then a real homer was incredibly cool. And I, I hope that they, they're probably outmatched talent-wise, especially in the bullpen, but I hope they get some cool moments and I think they're going to win a game or two at least. Like I think this is going to be a lot of fun to watch. I, I said this at the end of the last podcast and I probably should have taken my own advice because um, I still pick the Dodgers. But like those are top – they have three or top, three top-tier players in Marte, Carroll, and Christian Walker. Like those are three of the top 25 players in Fangraph's war um, in the National League this year. Like these are good players and I'm glad these guys are kind of getting their moment in the spotlight for that reason. I've been a Kettle Marte fan for years. I love the way he plays. He's had a little some injuries and kind of got up and down but like he is a very good player. So – I'm happy to see those guys get the spotlight. You mentioned the bullpen, and the D-backs in the playoffs thus far have done a fantastic job of maximizing the number of innings of their best relief pitcher. They do not have a very deep bullpen, which was kind of their bugaboo all season. But thus far in the postseason, they've played five games, and they basically have three you know, good relievers that they really trust in Kevin Ginkle, Paul Sewald, and Ryan Thompson. Those guys have pitched in four of the five games that they've played in the postseason thus far. The only game that they and the all and the same games too. They pitched in the same games. The one game they, those guys didn't pitch in was the game one blowout of Clayton Kershaw on the Dodgers when they were so far ahead they didn't need to pitch and they could have pitched in that game because they had the day off, the non-travel day off, but they didn't. That Tori Lavello has been able to use those guys in every game and basically stayed away from their 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 weak arms. They also have Joe Mantiply and Andrew Sal Frank who are tough on lefties. So if you you can get them in the right situations, especially with Schwarber and Harper. They can actually be useful weapons in that series. I had to mention Bryson Stott as well, another lefty hitter. There's an opportunity to really kind of like focus on those pitchers. And Kevin Ginkle is nasty. He's really good right now. He and Seawald have combined eight and a third innings so far, 13 strikeouts, two walks, no runs allowed. Like there's, you can see, you can see a path there for the Diamondbacks to win this series. And it's another example of um, things now are not necessarily the way things were. Like the three names you just mentioned, you know, Sewell was a trade from Seattle uh, right at the deadline. Ryan Thompson had been with the Rays for a while and got hurt and just wasn't performing and kind of fell apart. And they just, they let him go. Like the Diamondbacks picked him up for essentially nothing and um, kind of worked him back to health. And he's been a big performer. And uh, Tommy Pham was a trade for the Mets at midseason who, you know, he performed okay, not great, but endless stories about, you know, his presence in the young clubhouse and all that. The one thing I want to talk about with the bullpen, though, especially as it comes as a matchup against Philly, in the playoffs of the eight teams, the final eight teams that progressed, if you look at uh, reliever fastball velocity, such as sinkers and cutters, uh, sinkers and four-seamers, the Phillies, number one, 97.2 miles an hour. That's their average fastball, 97, which is obscene. Arizona was the last at 93.7, which is a huge gap. Obviously, not everything is about velocity. I'm not saying that it is, but a lot of it's about velocity. And I think that's that's the biggest difference in these bullpens. I mean, the the reason the Phillies and their bullpen uh, and Zach Wheeler, they were able to attack Acuna and the rest of the Braves so much is lightning fast fastballs well-placed at the top of the zone. They're going to do that to Arizona. I don't know that Arizona's relievers are going to be able to do that to these guys. Not that they're not good pitchers, but I don't 
think I've got a great feeling about these matchups against some of the Phillies hitters. That's that's the biggest, I think, difference in the series is the bullpens to me. Yeah, and I think that, you know, Seawald is kind of a good example. Like, as well as he's pitched, you know, he kind of has that lower arm angle. Like, if I'm if, if I see Seawald coming in and having to face Schwarber and Harper in a tight spot, those are matchups I really like. <laughs> If I'm the if I'm the Phillies, and I'm curious to see if Tori Lovello maybe changes some of his tactics for that reason, recognizing like, hey, I like him as a matchup against certain batters, but like I don't want him facing Harper in a one or two run game um, with a tying run at the base uh, on base. Yeah, and I think if you look at the rotations, Arizona, um, there's some parallels to be drawn to the Twins here a little bit. Uh, the, the Twins had two very good starting pitchers, right? Lopez, Sonny Gray really carried them. And when Sonny Gray didn't have it in the postseason, that was essentially their season. They, they were not going to be able to get past that. I think it's kind of the same here. Zach Gallon is fantastic, and he's going to be lined up to start at least two games in the series. Merrill Carley has been very, very good. He's going to be lined up to start at least two games in the series. Both of those guys have to be, I don't want to say perfect, but pretty close to it. Because if either one of them have an off game, I, I know Brandon Fapp pitched okay against the Dodgers. Cool, but like my trusting Ryan Nelson, you know, like I, I don't love the depth of their rotation, but I will I will point this out to you. Several years ago, in the same winter, when the Phillies signed Zach Wheeler, which has turned out to be one of the best free agent signings maybe in baseball history at this point, uh, Arizona spent a whole bunch of money on Madison Bumgarner for moments like this, right? Because like eventually we're going to get back to the postseason and we're going to have an all-time playoff dog, and he's not here because they cut him like four months ago because he couldn't pitch anymore. That, I think it's it's a fun little subtext where it's like, this was the moment. This was the moment for him to be here, and he's not here even though he was there earlier this season. I wonder if that's going to get brought up during the postseason at all. Maybe maybe once or twice. I also wonder how often this can get brought up that, like, Zach Gallen is from, like, South Jersey, just a stone's throw from Philadelphia. Because that's a that's – a, I don't know for a fact that he's a Phillies fan, but I think we're about to all find out. Or they grew up as a Phillies fan, but I think we're about to find out. Because <laughs> I think that's going to be a big story going into game one. Uh, he is from Summerdale, New Jersey, which is actually not that far away. Apparently, and I'm, like, Googling very quickly here, uh, Cardinals fan. I don't know why. I'm not sure why he grew up as a Cardinals fan. I'm from New Jersey and a group of Dodgers fans. So why do people latch on to teams in any way? Um, the Phillies and Diamondbacks both will have the chance to line up their rotation the way they want. And I, I think that's sort of cancels it out or a little bit. Um, you know, as you kind of noted here, we we talk a lot about Wheeler and Nota, and Nola. Ranger Suarez continues to be an absolute dude in the postseason. Like this is a number of times over the last two years, a 116 ERA in five starts and two relief appearances. That's really, really good. And I think you saw the first time he started, he was out after three and a third. The second time he was started, they trusted him a little more, right? And I, I think that's going to happen again, obviously, because it's a longer series. Every time I watch Suarez pitch, especially in the playoffs, he always throws like a tick or two faster than I expect him to. I'm like, oh, here's this guy. He doesn't have huge strikeout numbers, lefty, like sinker. Like he's probably, you know, be throwing 91, 92, maybe 93. And then like last night, he's like popping 95, 96. He's also a really good fielder. I like watching Ranger Suarez pitch. Um, and like, I think obviously Wheeler gets the hype. Nola was very good. Those are their two guys. But the fact that they can feel good about starting Suarez is a really is definitely having three quote-unquote reliable starters in the playoffs now feel, it feels like a luxury these days. <laughs> the other thing to watch for is um, damage on the base paths here because these two teams have really taken advantage of, of the new rules and being fast. I think they're two of the six or so fastest teams in baseball. Uh, in the division series, they stole 12 combined bases, seven from the Phillies, five from Arizona, everybody else, three combined. And there's two really, really good catchers 
behind the dish here. So that that is going to be a very interesting match, right? Gabriel Moreno is probably the best throwing catcher in baseball right now. Jay Tuermuto wasn't this year, but he has been in the past. I want to see Trey Turner trying to steal off of Gabriel Moreno. I want to see, see Corbin Carroll trying to steal off of JT Romuto. Those are going to be incredibly cool and compelling matchups to watch. Yeah, for sure. All right, Mike, prediction time. What do you got? Um, I have to go with the Phillies because the Phillies have the smell, as they say, and um, the bullpen advantage, I think, is kind of massive here. So I think I said Astros in seven. I'm going to go Phillies in six. I'm going with the chaos pick. Going with my gut. I just think that the, I almost feel like this is what baseball postseason is about, where like something seems so obvious that that's when like you know nature is at, when <laughs> when something seems so obvious that's when we get a z- zag. And so I'm going to go D backs in seven. I don't wow. really have a lot. Don't really have a lot of. I honestly don't have a good explanation for it, other than I just feel like maybe the Phillies are. I don't want to say regress a little bit, but it just seems like they've been so good right now. And it feels like so they they there's so much positive momentum behind them that um, maybe this is the D-backs moment. Wouldn't that require then the uh, Diamondbacks to go into Philadelphia and win a game seven? That seems a very tough environment to do that in. I would say it sure does. And like I said, my prediction was not entirely based in logic. It's more just expecting. We have to kind of expect the unexpected and. Uh, that's what I think might be, that would be the most unexpected outcome of, of, of these two matchups here. So that's why I'm going with it. This is right. science right here. Fair enough. I look forward to uh, whatever the opposite of what it was we said. Rangers Diamondbacks, I guess. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.